If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. It's Marks and Spencers. Plain old Marks and Spencers, I know. It's the way you wear it. Cooey, it's me, Will Young, at the Wellbeing Lab. Uh, Domino is sleeping. Esme's out on her walk. All is well. We've got a good episode. It's going to be insomnia, it's going to be breathing, it's going to be fascinating. We learn a lot. My first guest, Dr. Hugh Seltzer, is a consultant in psychiatry and sleep medicine and runs a sleep clinic at the Royal London Hospital. Amazing man. We talk about why sleep matters, treatments for insomnia. I never knew there were so many different types of sleep disorders, by the way. Um, the effects of exercise, alcohol, medication, screen time, etc. I ask him to explain what sleep does for us. I think if I could answer that question definitively, I would be sporting a Nobel Prize medal around my neck at the moment. I believe that you can get there. <laughs> and the truth is we don't know, actually. We certainly know that sleep is necessary for life. And you would likely die from lack of sleep more quickly than from lack of food, for example. But what exactly it does is still something of a mystery. and. It may, its functions might change through our life. So what sleep does for a baby and what sleep does for an adult may not be the same thing. But what we certainly know is that it's extremely important for the development of a child's brain. It's one of the reasons why, for example, in the womb, a child actually spends almost all of its time sleeping and why young babies, actually their predominant behavior is sleep. They do more of that than anything else. And that's because they need that sleep for the brain to develop. For adults, we know that sleep is important for our mental function, for regulating our mood, for helping us with concentration, to process memories, to lay down new skills. It's a little bit less certain what the, the functions of sleep are in terms of our physical health as adults. But as I say, we know that it certainly is important. We're just not quite sure what the mechanism is. And I experienced for the first time, and this came off the back of getting a diagnosis of PTSD, I'd never had insomnia before, never had a problem getting to sleep. And I had insomnia for about two years, I would say. And it was such a weird, I mean, very occasionally, I get it now, but really not very often. The, the, the sense for me was that my body didn't want to switch off. So, mm -hmm. you know, like my mind, want, I wanted to sleep. So I'd be yeah. willing my body to sleep, but my body was just like, not going to sleep. <laughs> Is that something you hear a lot if people come to you with insomnia? 
absolutely um you know i think most people can somebody describe having this sense of being tired but wired constantly fatigued but also kind of feeling like i'm on a caffeine buzz which which is not a, a pleasant sensation we think to some extent it, it's kind of your brain's way of coping with the lack of sleep is that if it's so tired it tries to increase its level of alertness to offset that tiredness but that increased alertness then makes it harder to sleep and you get into this vicious cycle and you also identified there another real paradox with sleep which is that if you ask good sleepers how they sleep they'll say i don't know it just happens whereas when people have insomnia you spend a lot of time and energy striving for sleep and actually the more you strive for sleep the more elusive it becomes so part of the the process of learning to be a good sleeper again is is almost kind of learning to stop trying yes because it almost felt like a bit of a clash like my nervous system was going absolutely no way my mind was going come on so when people come to to see you and they've come with something like insomnia which i would i would imagine is that probably the most common sleep disorder is that is that what i would Yes, uh, so certainly for for adults, it's by quite a long way the most common sleep disorder and probably getting more common with time. So depending how you define insomnia, we think that about 5 to 10% of adults suffer from insomnia, which is a you know pretty large number of people. That's a huge amount of people. What's causing it? So the initial cause of insomnia for people can be any one of hundreds of things stress pain noisy neighbors relationship problems um, illness depression you name it the list is pretty much endless but what we think happens is that when you have this initial bout of insomnia let's say because you're having a difficult time at work you respond to it in various ways you're going to respond psychologically uh, you're going to change your behaviors and you'll also change potentially you respond physiologically to it. And if you are really lucky in the way that you respond to that initial bout of insomnia, then when that initial stress goes away, you go back to sleeping well. But unfortunately, what often happens is when people get this initial bout of insomnia, the way that they respond, rather than making the sleep better, makes it worse. So for example, people might get very anxious about their sleep uh, when you start getting insomnia. And of course, the one thing that's guaranteed to stop you sleeping is being anxious about your sleep. One of the big mistakes a lot of people make is to try spending more time in bed, which makes sense because you think if I'm not getting enough sleep, I should give myself more opportunity to sleep by spending longer in bed. But actually that just turns out to make the insomnia worse. So very often by the time we see patients, the initial cause is long gone. The work stress is resolved, the sore knees better, the noisy neighbors have moved away, but it's these responses that have given the insomnia a life of its own that have kind of perpetuated it. What do you suggest to people when they do come and, and they haven't managed to reset after? What do you focus in on? The best treatment for insomnia is something called cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. And what we do is we start off really by looking at people's sleep-related behaviors and optimizing those behaviors. Um, and that really kickstarts the process of sleeping better. We will then also look at some of the some of the misconceptions about sleep, um, help them to, to manage anxiety better, uh, learn to quieten the mind down at night, uh, look at ways of relaxing better in the evenings. Um, and we put this all together in a package. And as a package, it's a remarkably effective treatment. So around 70 to 80% of people will experience significant improvement just doing those things. You know, the, the good news is that actually it's a very treatable condition. Um, the bad news is that the treatment does take a while to work. And it often requires people to do things which 
uh, would seem very counterintuitive and might be a bit anxiety provoking. Like, for example, we encourage people to spend less time in bed, which when you're already tired feels like a very scary thing. Yeah. So, so can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, so just as some examples of, of techniques that we would use um, is that we would encourage people to get up at the same time every day. Um, one of the things that's very often said to people with insomnia is to go to bed at the same time every night. And it turns out actually that's not always great advice. But what is really important is to get up at the same time every day. And the reason is that during the day you build up sleepiness, you accumulate sleepiness. And this is like the fuel that drives your sleep. So in a sense, from the moment you wake up in the morning, you are filling up your sleep fuel tank with sleep fuel. Now, if you start filling up that tank at a different time every day by waking up at a different time every day, the point at which your tank reaches full will be different every night. And so your the time when you fall asleep every night will be very chaotic. Yes. So by getting up at the same time every day, you start to fill that tank at the same time every day. Your tank reaches full at the same time every night. And so your bedtime will naturally become more consistent because you'll feel sleepy at the same time every night. The second thing that we do is we really discourage people who have insomnia from napping. Now, for some people, napping is good. If you are sleep deprived, which is a different thing, if you you know, if you've been out late and you, or you've been working late and you haven't gotten as much sleep as you need as a result of that, then napping is the right thing to do. But for people with insomnia, what you're doing if you're napping is you're stealing sleep from the next night. Mm. So we ask them to avoid napping. And then we ask people to go to bed later um, and to only spend as much time in bed as they think they're actually sleeping in total. How do you do that? So how does that work? So if we're working with with someone and we've got the time to do this we ask them to keep a sleep diary and we use that sleep diary to work out you know across a week what's their average sleep time and we simply subtract that average sleep time from their rising time which should be the same time every day and we say this is now your earliest bedtime and you're allowed to go to bed when you've reached that earliest bedtime and and really important that both conditions have to be met and you are feeling subjectively sleepy and what that does is it really helps to consolidate sleep because yes. someone who's spending nine hours in bed but sleeping six hours, it's like they're trying to make nine cups of tea with six tea bags. They're all going to be pretty insipid cups of tea. So what we say is let's make six cups of tea with six tea bags, spend six hours in bed. That gives you a much better quality of sleep. And then as your sleep becomes consolidated um, and you're not waking up a lot at night, you're falling asleep more easily then we will gradually increase the time in bed so that we can increase the quantity as well. What about exercise? So that's a really good question. And the, the evidence is that if someone is, is sedentary and they take up exercise, that it can improve their insomnia. Interestingly, the best evidence we have is that it doesn't happen straight away. It's some, there's some cumulative effect. So it's not the case of if I exercise today, I will tire myself out and sleep better tonight. Mm. Um, it's something about doing regular exercise over a period of several months that then leads to better sleep every night, including the nights you don't exercise. So almost everyone with insomnia will have at some point said, I've got to sleep tonight. I'm going to get on the treadmill and run for two hours until I'm nearly dead. And they've discovered that doesn't work. So a much better strategy in the longer term is just to take up a you know, regular exercise several times a week and persist with that for several months. And what about alcohol? So alcohol does help people to fall asleep more quickly, 
But the problem with alcohol is that it does come out your bloodstream during the night. And when it comes out the bloodstream, you get a kind of a mini withdrawal, which then wakes you up. It wakes you up so much earlier that on average, you will sleep less after a drink rather than more. And this is true even of quite moderate early evening drinking. It also does impair the quality of your sleep. So you're not getting as good a sleep as you would without alcohol. Now, I think it's important to say that, you know, for someone who's a good sleeper, you can have a couple of glasses of wine at night and it doesn't impact on your sleep, that's absolutely fine. But if you're struggling with your sleep, if you're having insomnia, I've been surprised actually at how big an impact just cutting back alcohol can have for some people. I think I sleep better if I don't drink, I have to say. Or I feel more refreshed the next day, but maybe that's a different thing. Um, Or maybe it isn't. Is screen time, could that be linked to that at all? Because you hear studies, don't you, people saying, oh, well, the screen makes your brain think it's daylight, so... Yeah, and again, I wish I could give you a firm answer, but I'm going to be a a bit iconoclastic and say that actually we don't encourage our patients to avoid screens at night. First of all, because to be honest, in the modern world, um, it's impossible. It's the way we interact with the world. So, you know, if you don't use screens at night, unless you're a hermit, it's just not possible. There is a concern that that light at night can delay your body clock and therefore can delay the time that you fall asleep. But actually, the effect is relatively minor, at least in adults. Any delay in sleep is somewhat, um, you know, it's modest. So one study that made the news a few years ago was that reading books on a backlit e-reader like an iPad delays your sleep onset. And this was all over the newspapers. And if you look at the paper, it's true that they did find a statistically significant delay in people's sleep. But the delay was less than 10 minutes. Really? It was statistically significant, but actually wow. in real life, really, you know, it's not, not an important difference at all. Yeah. Um, so it's How interesting not... that people didn't pick up on that, but the big thing was... Does that yeah. happen a lot with papers and studies? In... Uh, unfortunately, yes. Uh, and yeah. particularly in, in the realm of sleep, there's a lot of extrapolating way beyond what the studies actually say. Here's a question. I know some people that will say, you know, I've just never been a good sleeper. I don't know if they'd say they have insomnia, but they'll say they just really find it very difficult to get to sleep. And they might just get round it by not doing anything about it or taking medication, taking pills. I've never taken a sleeping pill in my life. Um, I don't know why, but just never have, but I'm not a huge pill person anyway. Um, not anti them. Do sleeping pills give you the same quality of sleep and are they an answer? It depends on the sleeping pill. There's a, a range of different pills and some of them do alter the architecture of your sleep, they alter the structure of your sleep. And uh, we don't know for sure whether that's always a bad thing, but um, as a general principle, we would be happier if your sleep structure looked natural with the medication. And there certainly are some sleeping medications that give you a very natural looking sleep. And I think there's a lot of suspicion uh, around sleeping medications. There's a lot of um, anxiety about sleeping medications in the UK, particularly. Um, and doctors are very reluctant to prescribe them. And there's a lot of anxiety about uh, the risk of addiction. And look, some of that anxiety is warranted. But actually, in the vast majority of people who take these medications, um, they are safe, they're effective. The majority of people who take them don't become addicted to them. And while, yes, there are risks with any medication you take, whatever that medication is, there are also 
you know, significant risks to having untreated insomnia. And, yes. um, you know, insomnia, what one study compared quality of life in people with insomnia to people with major depression and people with heart failure and found that having insomnia was as bad as having depression mm. or heart failure. And we would never leave those conditions untreated. Mm. Um, so we should never leave insomnia untreated. It has a huge impact on a person's quality of life and while we would always say, you know, try the behavioral and psychological techniques first because they they can potentially cure the condition. Mm -hmm. um, Is that what you do? Would you do that first? Sort of go down the CBT route, go down the, as you said, you know, getting up early, working out your hours of sleep, keeping a sleep diary. Would you start with that? Yes, absolutely. But mm. the problem is that actually in most places uh, in the UK, it's not really available or it's very difficult well, to I was access gonna... or there are long waiting lists. So, Can people come to sort out sleep problems on the NHS? Yes, so there are a few places on the NHS that will treat insomnia, but actually it really is a postcode lottery. So yes, you can, but you might have to travel. Uh, you might have to wait a long time to get access to the service. There are what we call IAP services, improving access to psychological therapy services, which are sort of entry level, brief psychology services that are contracted to every GP surgery. And there are quite a lot of them now that do offer the CBT. So you wouldn't necessarily get a, a medical workup um, or screen for other sleep disorders, but you might be able to get the CBT through that service. And would a CBT practitioner, would they, would they sort of have learned that particular approach for sleep? So, so most people who train as CBT therapists haven't actually trained specifically in CBT for insomnia. Uh, and the CBT that we do for insomnia is actually very different from uh, regular cognitive behavior therapy. In fact, there are times when we really think it's, it's misnamed somewhat, that it should be given a different name because it is so different. But there are, there are training programs around the country for people to specifically train in this technique. And so increasingly uh, CBT therapists and occupational therapists and psychologists and so on are getting trained in the techniques. But I think what's also important to say actually is that one of the mistakes that, that the medical profession has often made in the past is to assume that insomnia is a symptom of another condition. And therefore, if I just treat that other condition, the insomnia will go away. So mm. if someone's got depression and insomnia, doctors would just think, well, okay, if I treat the depression, the insomnia will get better as well. And actually, very often, that's not the case. Wow. Uh, very often, in fact, it's the insomnia that's caused the depression. And when the depression lifts, the insomnia remains. Uh, and that actually puts the person at higher risk of having another depressive episode. And so we really want to emphasize that actually when someone has got insomnia and something else, you should treat both. That's very interesting to hear. Is it taken seriously enough, do you think? I, I mean, I think it, it's starting to be. Um, for a long time, it wasn't taken seriously. Um, certainly when I was a trainee psychiatrist, when I told people I wanted to go into sleep, they looked at me like, what's interesting about that? But in in the last few years, there's been a real upswell of interest, um, both in the medical profession and in the general public. And so I think it is starting to be taken a bit more seriously. But yeah, I'd really encourage people just to, you know, if you do have a problem with your sleep is not to be shy to ask for help. Um, help is out there and it can sometimes take a while to get it. But, um, you know, certainly one shouldn't suffer in silence if you are having problems with your sleep, whatever that problem may be. That, that will be really 
honestly really comforting for people because I think lots of people do suffer in silence. Domino's chewing a bone. It's interesting that he's been snoring so much while we've been talking about (laughs) various versions of sleep deprivation. Um, But Hugh, you've been very patient. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope I get to speak to you again. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. And as I say, I'm I'm really keen for for people to find out as much as they can. So thank you for, for spreading the message. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I'm learning a lot from all these people and you, dear listener. So do get in touch. Um, I'll tell you how to do that at the end. Dr. Hugh, we like very much. This next person we also like, I use the royal we, James Nestor. His book has kind of gone pretty massive, actually. It's called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. He's an author and science journalist. We talk about why humans are so bad at breathing. I've been reading this book. The importance of the nose, I know. And um, he told me how he came to write the book in the first place. It's a tortured tale. I wish it were very quick and easy. Like I woke up one day and <laughs> thought that I should be writing a book about breathing, but but nothing ever is. And that was certainly the case with, with this situation. So it actually started the genesis, you could trace it back 11, 12 years ago when I was suffering from various respiratory problems. Over the years, year after year, I would get mild pneumonia and bronchitis, and I was starting to wheeze. I was doing everything else correctly, or at least I thought I was. I was exercising all the time, eating the right foods, all, all that stuff. But I was constantly having respiratory problems, and I would go to the doctor, and I would be given some antibiotics and sent on my way. And shoo, shoo, there, there you go. Come back when you're infected again. And that after the third or fourth time, I started wondering what was going on with my health. So a doctor friend recommended I check out a breathing class, which here in San Francisco, these are not hard to find. And I picked one at random. And I not only enjoyed it, but I felt a pronounced difference before and after that single class. And then weeks later, I noticed a lot of those respiratory problems were starting to disappear. Wow. So this was a kind of, it's like an elixir moment for you. It was, but at the same time, I'm a science journalist, so I wasn't going to just write a magazine story about my own experience. I thought that would be ridiculous. Other people write memoirs, they're fantastic, but that's not what I'm interested in doing. So it wasn't until about a year after that where I was having these huge improvements to my own personal breathing 
that I saw some of the best breathers in the world on an assignment for Outside Magazine where I was sent to write about the World Freediving Championship. And I saw the true potential of breathing, people doing things that are supposed to be medically, scientifically, biologically impossible, and yet they do it every day, over and over. And I thought, is there something we don't know about this seemingly mundane task of of breathing? My agent said, no, this is a terrible book idea. (laughs) Find something else. She absolutely hated it. But I dug in over months and months and months and started talking to people and a larger, in my opinion, more interesting story evolved from that. So could you talk a bit about the science of breathing? As in like, okay, why do we breathe? So we breathe to get oxygen. That's how we breathe because without oxygen, we can't make energy. We create ATP from oxygen and glucose or fatty acids. So there has to be oxygen present for us to burn energy. We can make energy anaerobically without oxygen, but it is extremely inefficient. We use way more oxygen than than we do use glucose to, to make energy. So how we're taking that oxygen in and how we're exhaling it, of course it's gonna make a difference to our energy levels and our health and even longevity. Uh, that doesn't seem like too far a leap to, to me, in my opinion, to say, well, if you can hold your breath for four minutes and you can go unconscious. So that, that just proves to you that we need this constant supply of oxygen to function right. And most of us, the majority of us, are getting that oxygen, but we're not getting it in the right way. And we're not getting it very efficiently. We're able to get by, but we're not able to really be healthy. And that's that's what these researchers have found. And the way that we've evolved in terms of our physicality has made it harder, has it not, to efficiently take an oxygen? It would be great to just put your finger on one reason why humans are the worst breathers in the animal kingdom. And that was a quote I heard from a researcher five, six years ago. I said, what are you talking about? So if you look at what's happened to our species, a lot of people believe that evolution means progress, that we get very confused about what Darwin meant by natural selection. We think it's all about stronger, bigger, greater, every generation, survival of the fittest. You hear that in the corporate world all the time. But that's obviously not how things work. If you look at what's happened to the human body in the past hundred years, we're not getting stronger and fitter and better. And even with all these medical interventions, life expectancy is decreasing now. So the idea that we're constantly evolving to become a better life form is wrong. That's not what evolution has ever meant. Evolution means change and you can change for better or for worse. So if you look at how we've changed, we've changed in many ways. We've changed our environment uh, to wear tight clothes and to sit up at desks for 10 hours a day, something we never did before. We've changed in the way that many of us live in cities with very bad pollution in our homes, our dust and allergens and other things to clog up our noses. But most of all, I think one of the, the major drivers to our breathing dysfunction is our faces have literally changed dramatically in the past few hundred years. So much so that our teeth no longer fit. What do you mean our teeth no longer fit? Well, the vast majority of people have crooked teeth. Why do you have crooked teeth? Because you have a mouth that's too small for your face. 
So this seems impossible, but all you have to do is look at ancient skulls and then look in the mirror or compare modern skulls to skulls just 300, 400 years ago. This is something I spent months doing and the proof is all over the place. I was speaking to someone the other day. He's a brilliant guy. And um, he said, oh, I'm reading this brilliant book, your book. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm hoping to talk to James. He's been around. He did, he did a lot for the Olympics uh, in the UK. You know, so he's been around a lot of sports people. And I said, do you want me to ask him a question? And he's just fascinated with nasal breathing and your experience with it. Can you talk about that a bit? I mean, I was fascinated with it as well. So one of the problems with our mouths becoming too small is that upper palate tends to push up into our sinus cavities, which gives us less space here, which guess what happens? Plugs up our noses, makes us become mouth breathers, and all those allergens and that dust and pollution can also cause chronic nasal obstruction. So if you look at what has happened to our skulls and what has happened to our culture and the way we live, it's really pushed us into being mouth breathers. So the first question I had is, well, who cares? You know, you have a nose, you have a mouth, they're the same thing. You're getting air into the body and you're exhaling air. It shouldn't make a difference. That's why we're designed to have a mouth, but that couldn't be further from the truth. And I learned from researchers who have been studying this for literally decades and decades at top institutions who taught me that the air we breathe through the nose is so dramatically different than the air we breathe through the mouth. So I'll give you a couple reasons. There's about 30 different reasons, but I'll give you the top ones is first of all, when you breathe through your nose, you notice there's more pressure. That's a good thing that slows down the air and allows more oxygen to be extracted in your lungs. We need that pressure. You also notice that it takes a while for that air to get through your nose into your throat, into your lungs, because it has to go through all these passageways, which filter the air, they moisten it, and they heat it up. So this is our first line of defense for our bodies, is to breathe air through the nose. And every other mammal breathes air, well, almost every other mammal, except for dolphins and, and whales, are breathing air through their noses. They're obligate nasal breathers, but humans have defaulted to mouth breathing, and it's contributing to so many chronic issues, including it is not helpful for an athlete to constantly be mouth breathing because an athlete needs to be efficient, and this is not an efficient route of getting oxygen and exhaling CO2. I mean, you put yourself, you really put yourself through it, didn't you, in terms of forcing yourself to breathe through your mouth for I can't remember how, how long it was now, forgive me. And then you did the opposite. Could you talk about that? So one of the people I learned a lot about nasal breathing from was Dr. Jayakar Nayak down at Stanford. I'm in San Francisco, so Stanford's pretty close. I'm down at their medical library all the time. And he's the chief of rhinology research. And he's the one who told me, you know, this, there's this complete mass of people, the vast majority of people breathing through their mouth. It's so problematic, yada, yada. And I said, well, we know that it's problematic. It can lead to periodontal disease, increased risk of respiratory infection, all of that. That's all proven. But what we didn't know was how quickly that damage from mouth breathing came on. Uh, there had been no human trials. There had been animal studies, which are 
terrible. I, I don't suggest anyone read them. I agree. And which they they very much damage these animals, their faces, their ability to breathe, their mental capacity. It's just mm-hmm. awful. So so no one's arguing with that, but no human trials. And I said, you're at Stanford. Why don't you run a study here? And he thought doing so would be unethical because he knew of all the damage mouth breathing could cause. So I volunteered for a small experiment. Uh, the total amount of people was two and the maximum amount of time that he would allow us to do to be mouth breathers was 10 days. Yes, that's what I, I thought it was 10 days. Yeah. Which you think, well, what, what wrong could happen in, in 10 days, right? Even if you ate crappy food for 10 days it's not going to really affect your health too much try mouth breathing for 10 days and when we have the data to prove it uh it was horrendous we, we knew it was going to be bad but we had no idea it was going to be so injurious to our minds to our bodies athletic performance i mean across the board and to think that there's so many people tens of millions hundreds of millions of people mouth breathing every day and having all these problems and not understanding that a lot of their problems could be tied to the pathway through which they breathe air. I just thought was was tragic, especially after having experienced that for 10 days. So tell me a little bit about the experience of, of that, because you were so closely monitored. You know, you had a very strict regime and routine every day for both when you were breathing through your mouth and then breathing through your nose. So how did you feel when you were only breathing through your mouth for 10 days? So we the experiment was in two phases. First part was 10 days mouth breathing. Second phase was 10 days nasal breathing. And we collected data three times a day. And we did these huge data collections at Stanford in between at the beginning, uh, midway through, and at the very end, which we were down there for eight hours, blood work, pulmonary function tests. I mean, you you name it, x-rays, all of that. So throughout the day, the very first day, within a few hours, my blood pressure shot up about 25 points, which kind of scared me, but I just said, oh, I'm stressed out. And that night I went to bed and for the first time that I'm aware of, I started snoring. And I know that I wasn't snoring before because we took about two weeks of baseline and I wasn't snoring at all. As this experiment progressed, everything got precipitously worse. So I started snoring for four hours a night within about three days of mouth breathing from zero to four hours. The other person in the study, Anders Olsen from Sweden, was snoring the entire night. We started suffering from sleep apnea, which is when you choke on yourself (laughs) so much that your oxygen levels decrease. And this is tied to increased risk of diabetes and heart attacks and strokes and all this stuff, bad news. So those two pathologies came on just by switching the pathway through which we breathe. And beyond that, I won't get into the details, but we couldn't focus. It was hard to exercise. We were laughing about it for the first few days. And after a week, uh, we were both starting to, to genuinely lose it. And we didn't know if we could continue on with the experiment. Uh, but we dug in and, and did it. And that day we got these plugs out of our noses was was kind of emotional, not just because of me, but again, because so many kids, like 50% of kids suffer with chronic obstruction, right? And 15% of the population suffers from chronic sinusitis. And people think it's normal to feel this miserable all the time, but but it's not. How can we bring this into our lives? Should we be sitting down an hour a day doing breathing exercises? Should we be constantly breathing through our nose? 
everybody's different, so it's hard to offer a blanket prescription. So what I tried to state very clearly in the book is that all of these hacks that we're developing, these breathing techniques, are just to get us back down to normal. We are so abnormal in the way that we're breathing that we need these exercises to get us to breathe the way humans were naturally designed to breathe. And a beautiful guide for how to breathe is you look to nature. I hope that doesn't sound too new agey, but look at a horse at a full sprint breathing. They're not breathing through their mouths. Look at a cheetah sprinting at 100 kilometers per hour. It's breathing through its nose. And you see this across the animal kingdom. Your dogs and my dog, they will breathe through their mouth on occasion, but they are thermoregulating. They are offloading heat because they can't sweat. If your dog is healthy, it's going to be breathing through its nose the rest of the time. So I think that the best thing to do, and this is, everyone thinks there's some, some magic information. This is the secret I've found to breathing. I, I wish I had that. I, I, you know, I think I'd be a much more successful business person if I did. But there's no magic to it. The, it starts with awareness. Notice how you're breathing. Are you breathing through your mouth most of the time when you're working out? Uh, when you're jogging, when you're walking? That's really bad. And I could explain to you why that is bad. At night, more than 60% of the population breathes through the mouth. How do you know if you're doing that? Do you wake up? Is your mouth dry? Do you have to drink water throughout the night? Do you get cavities quite often? Do you have periodontal disease? Those are all hints that you are likely breathing through your mouth. So the next thing is once you diagnose your breathing issue, you say, well, what do I do about that? The very first thing you have to do is to become a nasal breather for 10 minutes as you're answering emails and then for 20 minutes as you're doing the dishes and then for 30 minutes and you increase that to slowly condition yourself and condition your nose to help open up. And the same thing is true with, with sleep. And then there's a bunch of other exercises you can do and those are great. They're scientifically validated. They work wonders, but none of that's really gonna make a difference if you're still breathing through your mouth. So that is, that is the number one thing you have to breathe through your nose most of the time. Uh, I just want to make something very clear that if you're laughing, I just took a mouth breath there. If you're sighing, occasionally breathing through your mouth during yoga practices, even at intense levels of physical exercise, occasionally doing it is completely fine. What I'm talking about is habitual breathing. The stuff we do 95% of the time should be through the nose. The science is there. And if you don't believe me, you can measure how breathing affects your moods. It can affect your heart rate, your blood pressure, and more. Yourself, you can do this at home. James, thank you very much. Take care. Good luck with all the future. It's been wonderful. Thanks very much for having me. James Nestor, very cool guy. Two very cool guys, actually. Uh, Dr. Hugh and James Nestor. Well, you might be hearing some noise in the background that is my family it is easter and uh i'm i'm not triggered at the moment which i think is good <laughs> i've just been on a walk with my niece actually taking photos really nice way of looking at the world differently just through a camera it was in, it was really fascinating for me to see her start looking at the world and a walk that could have taken 10 minutes took over an hour because she was seeing all the beauty in the world it's a form of mindfulness i guess anyway you've been in touch thank you from twitter 
dear Will, love listening to today's podcast on my run. Wasn't the prettiest run, but I got back out there. Well done. Please say once these 10 episodes are over, there will be more. We'd love to see one about confidence and self-confidence and the lack of it. Well, there will be more. And we have taken note of that. Thank you, because we have an ongoing running list of things. So thank you. Someone via Instagram. Hi, Will, loving your podcast. Your voice is so soothing. Thank you very much. I'm going to move into the hypnosis world. Could you please do an item on living with a chronic illness? It's a constant feeling of always wanting to feel well. And when those moments of normality do come, they are quickly snatched back from you. I really relate to that, actually. I had that with depersonalization. It makes it really hard to cope with and constant dread of its return. The same as mental health, I suppose, too. Loving your work. Um, I'd like to hear more about that, actually. And maybe, I mean, we won't say your name, but perhaps what the chronic illness is, if you feel okay to share that um hi will this is from facebook i've absolutely loved all five episodes they're so empathic eloquent and ask all the right questions thank you i enjoyed the cbt and the boundaries topics but all the guests have been fabulous and so interesting many areas of interest for me emotional irregulation abandonment depression to name a few thank you really love the well-being lab thank you very much And we've had an email. Hello, I'm 31 years old from Exeter, Devon. I went to Exeter University. Listen to Will talking about his experience with depersonalisation on a podcast with Fern Cotton and found it fascinating as I also suffer from the same issue. I've struggled with depersonalisation anxiety for around nine years now and it has led me to develop agoraphobia and waste the majority of my 20s. Due to the issues with now going outside, I found it very difficult to get any real help for what I'm experiencing. I feel very stuck and trapped in my situation. Just wanted to thank Will for bringing light to the subject and for making me feel less alone. It's my pleasure. It's really very comforting to hear someone speak about the subject who's made it out the other side, and I look forward to reading his book, All the Best. Well, you can make it out the other side, but thank you for getting in touch because it is a very isolating illness, and it and it made me very agoraphobic. So, I can, you know... Um, and we're very quick to turn it on ourselves, but it's not your fault, I want to tell you that. And um, you will get there, you can get better, I promise. And thank you so much for getting in touch. It's actually very apropos our next episode, which is on dissociative disorders, because I experienced it, and equine therapy. Oh, it's amazing, equine therapy. Really fascinating. So tune in for that. As ever, get in touch. I'm going to tell you how. Don't care if you don't want to hear it. I'm telling you. On Instagram and Facebook, it's at the Wellbeing Lab podcast. Twitter, at the Wellbeing Lab. Email, hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com. Yes, next week again, dissociative disorders and equine therapy. It's another really good one. I hope you all had a lovely Easter. If you were hanging around family and perhaps you were getting triggers and things like that, I hope you managed them. Lots of love to you. Bye-bye. Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the Acast Creator Network? It's true. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.